couple of years ago, my wife was given this book that she read, and a lot of people actually read this. It was a pretty popular book. It was called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. How many of you, like, read the book? How many of you read that? Okay, a couple of you. I just want to find out who's OCD in the room. Just let's find out. Let's all find out together, like, who, because it's an interesting book. I didn't read it, but I think there's some interesting things in it. But my wife read portions of it aloud to me, so it's like I read it. And, uh, and here's the thing with the book. The woman who writes it, she's pretty weird about, in, 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 in how she relates to things, to her stuff. And so in the book, she says things like, you know, this whole concept of decluttering or whatever. She says things like, um, when you take your purse off or your bag and you take it off your shoulder, you should empty it of its contents and then hang it up and say to your purse, you know, thank you for serving me today. And you should fold your socks nicely, and, 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 and she has a way for that, like, so that they can rest and relax. And, and you should take your dishes, and instead of drying them in your kitchen, put them out on the balcony where they can dry, and so they don't clutter up your kitchen, which is weird, because then you're cluttering your balcony for other people to look at, and we don't have a balcony anyway, but whatever. Uh, so she's got all these odd things, and I thought, man, she has a weird relationship to stuff. Like, am I going to thank my bag? Like, I don't know, that's kind of... That's kind of odd, you know? Well, if you haven't read the book, um, there are some good things in it. And here, let me just give you the heart of the book. Here's the thing, okay? The, the, the kind of the, the magical thing of the book. Here's what she says you should do. You need to take all of your things, starting with your clothing, and hold these things in your hand one at a time. And so take your shirts and hold them in your hand and say, and, you're, and here's the question, does it spark joy? That's what she wants that's what she wants you to ask. She, she says that's the most reliable way of knowing in your heart, does this thing spark joy? And if it doesn't spark joy, dispose of it. Get rid of it. That's it, guys. Hold your stuff up. Does it spark joy? So in case you're wondering, this shirt sparks joy. That's why I have it. Um, <laughs> but, but that, so go through all your stuff, and you'll end up throwing out a lot of stuff because, you know, uh, she's basically like, if it, your heart is most reliable, and if it doesn't spark joy and it doesn't move your heart, then get rid of it. So you'll end up throwing out a lot of things, and that's kind of, a, kind of an interesting idea, I guess, to, to kind of do that. And I think, uh, I think that idea, the concept of does this spark joy, I think that actually works for stuff. You can look at your stuff and say, do I really need this? It's another way of saying, do I really need this, right? That works for your possessions, but unfortunately, a lot of the things in life don't spark joy, and you can't just dispose of them. You can't dispose of relationships that don't spark joy. I know there's all sorts of memes out there that says you need to get rid of the toxic people in your life and don't let them rent space in your brain and things like that. But you can't always do that. You can't always dispose of toxic people. You can't always get rid of things in your life that don't spark joy. Because come on, there are things in life that don't spark joy. The DMV does not spark joy and I have to go there. Uh, there's, There's stuff, relationships, things, relationships at work with other people. Um, that don't spark joy, and you can't just dispose of them. And in a lot of ways, this series that we're starting today is about that. What do you do with those things that you can't get rid of? And what do you do with those things that just don't get better? Uh, Because a lot of life is really those sorts of things. There are plenty of things that don't spark joy and things that are bad. Politics, we could talk politics all day long, and, and there's some stuff there that doesn't spark joy. Wars. Do not spark joy. Hurricanes do not spark joy in our lives. Racism, the homicide rate in Richmond this year, the crumbling school system, these things don't spark joy. 
And how do you just get rid of them? What do you, what do, you do about them? Or let me make it even a little closer to home for some of us. People just die. People that we love. People that we know. I got the message maybe about a month ago that uh, John Petritus passed away. And John was, if you know John and Babette, and if you're around Area 10 for a while, they were pretty faithful members of Area 10 for about five years. They were, they were here. I used to cut hair over here in Carytown. I used to go into their salon. And John was 57 years old, died of pneumonia. And I think that's really young. And, and I didn't know people that young die of pneumonia. I was like, wow, what just happened? And I had this moment, this kick in my gut. Laura forwarded me the obituary while I was out. She said, hey, look, John Petritus just died. And I had this kick in my gut, like, why, God? That seems so not okay. And it doesn't spark joy, and you can't just wipe it away. What, what do we do with, with that stuff? Because people die too young. And I know you've felt that before. You know that feeling where, where stuff happens, and you can't get rid of it, and it doesn't necessarily get better. What do we do with that stuff? Well, in this series, I, I want us to deal with some, some brutal facts, some, some honest talk about where things are going and, and, and what is the arc of history and, and, and our lives. Um, and there's some brutal facts that we need to address. Jim Collins wrote a book, Good to Great. It was a very popular business book about a dozen years ago. It's a really good book. And in one of the chapters, one of the chapters is called Confront the Brutal Facts. And in this chapter, he interviews James Stockdale. Some of you may remember he was a vice presidential candidate a few years ago. James Stockdale was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for seven years. And Collins interviews him and says, um, who, didn't, who didn't make it in, as prisoner of war? Who were, the, who were the people that just couldn't make it? And he said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. And Collins was like, what do you mean the optimists? Why didn't the optimists make it? And he said, because the optimists were always like, oh, we're going to be freed from this prison. We're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go, and they weren't free. Oh, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come and go, and they weren't free. Oh, we'll be out by the fall. And they just kept believing that they were going to get out, and then they didn't. And eventually those people died, Um, sickness or whatever. They just didn't keep any sense of hope. He said the people that survived the imprisonment were the ones who confronted the brutal facts that we may just be here a long, long time. So I want to give you at least three convictions to start off this series that we're going to talk about. I want to give you three convictions that I have and maybe at least one brutal fact about this whole thing. Number one, sin is real, pervasive, and destructive. I know that sounds old-fashioned to say in 2017, but I believe it's a reality. There's a darkness in the culture and in us, in our own hearts. There is sin in us. It is what drives us. It's a spiritual sickness. We can say the problems of the world are because of lack of, lack of education or there's poverty or, or all of these things that we want to point to. But at the end of the day, underneath all of those things, those are surface things, underneath all of those things, there is sin. There's a brokenness to the world. All of creation groans with it. It's a mess. There's stuff in us, in the, in the ecosystem uh, sin is real, and we need to be honest about that and deal with that. Romans 3.23 says it this way. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all messed up. We're all victims, and, and, and we, we're all perpetrators of some pretty dark stuff. There's pride and lust and anger um, in, in our hearts. So number one, sin is real. Number two, Jesus saves us. I think that is the truth of Scripture. If you look at the grand narrative of the Bible, what you find is that we were created for good, and, and Tommy and Laura walked you through this over the last month, and it, it, things went awry. We sinned. We messed up, and we put a rift between us and God and between us and other people. 
And, and Jesus comes along and pays for our sin on the cross. He enters humanity 2,000 years ago, dies on a cross, takes all of your sin, all of the darkness, all the sins you've ever committed, all the sins you ever will. Those get lumped onto him on the cross, and he pays for them. And, and God brings justice and love in that moment. And Jesus dies for our sins. And we are able to be in a right relationship with God because Jesus has done that. Jesus actually saves us. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation, uh, being in a right relationship with God and others, being with God for eternity, uh, that is because of what Jesus has done. So one, sin is real. Two, Jesus saves us. Number three, Jesus makes your life better now. Our faith is not just about when you die. Yes, there's heaven and there's like a whole heaven and hell narrative. We'll get into all that. There, there, these things are real, I believe, and there, there's, a, there's a direction our life is going. But our faith is not just about what happens when we die. Jesus actually makes your life better now. Following God's principles for your life in the way you in the way in your marriage in your dating relationships in your sex life in the way you handle money in the way you handle work in the way you handle other relationships I believe that that is the if you follow God's principles that's the best way you could live your life now in fact I'm a follower of Jesus not just because I'm going to go to heaven when I die which sometimes can seem a little like odd or hard to get my head around but I think it's a better way to live now that there's there's a real hope to, to live in the practical moments of, of, of our everyday lives. And so Jesus makes our life better now. In John 10, 10, he says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus didn't come to ruin your fun. He came to show you the life, the abundant life and to bring you an abundant life. That, that he, he does make your life better now. But here's the brutal fact, number four. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't make your life better now. Sometimes she wants to get pregnant and she doesn't. Sometimes his health never gets better. Sometimes you never find a boss that's fair that you were hoping for. Sometimes they get a divorce anyway. Sometimes you sit at home on prom night wishing you were out. Sometimes you're going to have to stay on that medication for the rest of your life. Sometimes you never get to pick out the wedding invitations and you always hoped you would. Sometimes they never forgive you. That's, that's real, guys. And so this series that I wanted to start today is called WTH. And we're talking about heaven, hell, and hope. And the reason it's important, today is just to set that up. The reason it's important we talk about these things is because sometimes things don't get better. And where do we go with that? As followers of Jesus, I think we have somewhere to go. I think we have the hope of heaven. I think there's eternity. I think there's an end to all of this. But when I bring up heaven, it gets a little bit confusing. Like, we like the idea of heaven. Oh, yeah, when I die, I'm going to be with God, or I'm going to be in this place. But where is it? How do we get there? What's it like there? Who's going to be there? Who's not going to be there? We'll get into some of these things in the next couple weeks, the best I can give you on that. But it's a little confusing. And we have all sorts of cultural baggage about heaven, don't we? Like, if you surveyed Americans, do you believe in heaven? A, a large percentage, something like 90% or something, believe in heaven, believe that we go somewhere after we die, that kind of thing. Um, but we're real fuzzy on the details. Like, heaven is often portrayed as blue and white. I don't know why. It's like Greece. Uh, it's like uh, there's clouds, and, uh, and there are, and it, some of this comes from, like, medieval art and literature and stuff, but there's, like, um, angels with wings, and there's, like, um, harps, there's always harps. Why are there always harps? I mean, I like the harp. It's okay. 
But do we need that in heaven? Why aren't there saxophones? Why are saxophones like in hell or something? I don't know. Like, why can't we have a guitar? Can we rock out? Or is it just harps? I don't know. It's always this image, and you can think, oh, heaven, we're going to be like floating on a cloud and all that. And honestly, there's not a whole lot of that that sounds appealing to me. I don't think, oh, I can't wait to go to heaven, harps, singing. Like, you know, worship. I love when we sing together. Man, I, I love being back in this again this morning. And I was a singer in college. Like, that's, I, I'm all about some singing, but forever? Like, we're going to eternally sing? This doesn't sound that great. Is this really what we're going to do? And even the concept of eternity, if you think about it, is a little bit terrifying. We're used to everything having an end, including us. So think about forever. Is there anything that you would want to do forever? Nothing. I can't think of anything I want to do forever. I like chocolate. I don't want to eat it forever. Like the, so the concept of eternity is a little bit terrifying. So it's no wonder we don't think about it too much or think about heaven. Uh, it's, a little, it's a little odd. But, so for the next five weeks, I want to separate some of the facts and fiction around heaven and hell because life is hard and sometimes things don't get better. And, and where are we going to go with that? We need hope. Tim Keller, author, pastor in, in New York, he says this, you and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. We are controlled not how we live now, but what we think will happen later. Christian hope has to do with the ultimate future, not the immediate. What we believe about our ultimate future really matters, not just for the future, but it actually really matters now. So I want to jump in and give you a couple convictions that I have from, from studying this and looking at the scripture. Number, number one, I have this conviction, we need heaven. We need uh, an ultimate end to, to this story. We're, I want to look at the book of Revelation, uh, and Revelation's an un, unusual book here, so not only when we talk in heaven and hell, we're going to talk Revelation, which is extra layers of weird. But Tommy and Laura, over the last five weeks, gave you uh, Genesis. I have to tie my shoe. Sorry about that. It's a thing. See, what a broken world we live in. Shoe came untied. So much pain, angst. Uh, Tommy and Laura gave you Genesis, um, and, and they walked through. And Genesis is really good to tell us where we've been, where we came from, why we're here, some, some foundational identity pieces. Revelation's a really good book to tell us where we're going and, and where does this story go. But as Laura pointed out when she spoke a few weeks ago, you have to look at ancient context, you have to look at cultural context. And when you talk about the book of Revelation, it's a tricky one. If you said, hey, I want to read with the Bible, should I start in Revelation? I'd be like, no, don't start in Revelation. Just avoid it for like a year or something. Like just step back from Revelation a bit because it's odd. And there's a couple reasons it's odd. One is genre. We have genres of literature that we're used to. So if you read Shakespeare or Jane Austen or David Sedaris or John Grisham, you know what you're getting into there. Those are very different kinds of books, different audiences, different styles, and you interpret them appropriately based on the genre. Well, in the, in the Bible, you have genres as well. Uh, poetry, prophecy, history, there's some letters in there, and, and you interpret those things based on those genres. The book of Revelation is a genre we don't even have anymore called Jewish apocalyptic literature. Have any of you read Jewish apocalyptic literature? Probably not, right? You don't read that in Britlet with Beowulf. Like, that's going to be a different thing, right? So Jewish apocalyptic literature, we're not used to that. It has all sorts of imagery about bowls of wrath and demons and beasts and horsemen and, and you know, spears coming out of people's mouths, and it's just crazy stuff. You read that, and you're like, I don't even know what to do with, with this thing. So a guy named John wrote Revelation based on what he had seen, God, this vision God had given him. And John was one of Jesus' closest friends. We went through the book of John 
earlier this year and almost all of last year. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he's the disciple that lives the longest. The rest of them get martyred. John lives to be a very old man, and in, in around 90 AD, he writes the book of Revelation. And he is exiled on the Isle of Patmos, which is off the western coast of Turkey, in between Turkey and Greece. John gets exiled there, and he writes this letter as an encouragement to the Christians who are in Turkey, and he writes to these seven churches that are in the country of Turkey, in, in, the, in the western side there. And it's, uh, it's really interesting stuff. We read it and we go, boy, this is bizarre, but understand how they would have read it. In the, in the ancient world, in that first century, at that time, the emperor was a guy named Domitian. And Domitian uh, had a, referred to himself as Lord and God. The emperor was Lord and God. And that wasn't uncommon for the Caesar or the emperor to do that. But you can imagine if you're a Jew... You don't want to call that guy Lord and God. You want to call God Lord and God, and he's the only one. And if you're a Christian, you say Jesus is God. You're not going to say this emperor is God. And so persecution started against the Christians in around the year 64 AD and was off and on for the next couple hundred years. And in the midst of that, John writes in 90 AD, John writes a letter which basically says, Revelation, at the end of the day, it basically says, look, I know it looks bad right now. I know it looks like Rome is winning, but Rome doesn't win. The empire doesn't win. The good guys are going to win. God has got this. Jesus is taking care of this, even though it looks dark, even though it looks bleak at this moment. And so while we read Revelation like it's weird thousands of years later, they would have read it as like a cup of cold water on a hot, steamy day. It would have been like, oh, well, this is good to hear. This is good news. So I want to jump in Revelation 20, right near the end of the book. And there's some crazy imagery here. I just want to jump in a little bit. Uh, 20 verse 4. Then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. All right, you get this image of heaven and there's these people there that are going to be judging and, and kind of part of the whole, the whole scene there. And it says they were, these people were beheaded because of their faith in Jesus. So right there, that should tell you that sometimes it doesn't get better. Sometimes it ends abruptly and, and, and quickly, and, and we would think poorly. These people were beheaded not because they were so bad, but because they were so good. They were actually following Jesus. They were following him closely, and that ended with them losing their heads. It's crazy, but it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, if anyone comes after me, he needs to deny himself. Jesus does not promise that it's all going to be awesome all the time. He promises us that in this world we will have many troubles, but to take heart that he has overcome the world. So you get this image of heaven, and there's these beheaded people there who stood up for their faith. And, and, and maybe some of you have experienced that, not the beheading part, but maybe you've experienced, I stood up for my faith and it cost me something at work. It cost me a friendship. It cost me something at, at Thanksgiving with family. Uh, maybe there's a rift between you, and you've seen some dark stuff, and you've not liked the road that it's taken you down sometimes. Maybe some of you have prayed this prayer, Jesus, your plan stinks. In your name, amen. I mean, that's, that's honest, right? You felt that way. So how do we react to that? How do we react to the pain, the, the dark stuff? A lot of people say we should just be optimistic. You know, just turn that frown upside down. Just be happy. Just look on the bright side. Author Sean Acor talks about the difference between rational optimism and irrational optimism. And, he's, and he talks about a friend. He said, I got in a friend's car, and my friend wasn't wearing a seatbelt. I said, you're going to wear a seatbelt. And my friend said, no, man, I'm an optimist. I don't wear seatbelts. 
To which Sean Acor said, that's not how it works. Uh, optimism does not stop your head going through the windshield if you get into an accident. You see, there's a difference between rational optimism and irrational optimism. Irrational optimism does not acknowledge the facts and just chooses to look on the bright side. Rational optimism says, no, this is really the reality of the situation. I will be, and I will choose hope, and I will be optimistic nonetheless. And I think Christians are called to be rational optimists or cautious optimists. We know there's good. We know there's hope. We know there's heaven. We know there's eternity. We know something good happens at the end of all this, but we're also cautious, and we realize that we're broken, that sin is in the world, that there's, that there's uh, darkness. So I think if you stake your life in Christ, you have reason to hope. We need heaven, um, and I think we have good reasons to hope for it because, number two, Scripture gives us reason to hope. Listen, uh, just let me read down a couple verses later. In, in the Bible, the, the heading that they put here is called the defeat of Satan. Listen to what it says. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. So that's, that's the way it's described. Now, that sounds like a literal war going on. There's an army surrounding the camp of the saints. I don't know that it has to be literal. It's just saying this. Look, uh, at the end, Satan loses. He is defeated by God. And I think that's a really good news because there's plenty of darkness and plenty of evil at work in the world today. Have you noticed how evil the world is? Have you noticed the racism, the genocide going on in Syria? Have you seen it in the paper? Have you seen it at work? Have you seen it at school? It's everywhere. And the reason it's everywhere is because we carry the sin in our hearts and we carry it wherever we go. And so God deals with that and casts it all out into hell. Now, I'm going to talk about hell in a couple weeks, more, a lot more. Um, that's, an, that's a concept we get really uncomfortable with. If I could talk about heaven all day. Who's going to be there? What that's going to be like? Are we going to be able to play harps or not? Can we dance? Is there dancing? Is there football? All of these things, we can address these things. Um, and, and we're okay with that. But when I start bringing up hell, people get like squirming in their seats. And it's not just because those seats are uncomfortable. It's sort of like, uh, I don't like this side of God. This, uh, this darkness here that he's going to cast people out and send people to hell. And, um, but I think a lot of our objections to hell stem from our sense of, of justice. Um, we're concerned that God isn't going to weigh the scales properly. And why would this person go to hell? Didn't they already experience enough in life? And what about this person over here? And, and we have this sense of justice in us. I think we yearn for justice. We yearn for a world where the good guys win and the bad guys lose. It's the story of every movie that we watch. It's like we yearn for that to be true. And I think what Revelation shows us is it is true. There is uh, justice. God will bring justice, and he will bring about a day when the good guys win and the bad guys lose. In fact, Revelation 20, verse 12, he says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So what that tells me is there's a coming judgment for us where God will, will dole out his, his sense of of, ju of justice. 
And that judgment is coming for all of us. We'll talk about that more next week. But I just want to make this point right now. Number three, God will bring justice. There is so much injustice in the world and so much broken stuff. You know, Tommy jokes about this, that whenever I leave town, things go badly. Uh, So I leave town for five weeks. And let's just recap what happened in the last five weeks while I was gone. Two hurricanes as of this morning. Uh, in, in, in the U.S. Uh, and then the islands the last couple of days. Two hurricanes. Uh, there was some saber rattling about nuclear war with Korea um, while, while I was out. Uh, that was going a little haywire. Um, and then before I left, Charlottesville was um, a nice college town. Uh, an hour from here in the mountains, America's prettiest college campus. I've seen it in rankings and stuff like that. It's a very nice place. And then somewhere along there, it got branded sort of nationally as this, like, racist. Um, and, and there were these big problems there. And you, you all know. I mean, you, you, you read it and were around it as well. And there's some dark stuff that happens um, on a Saturday in August in, in, in Charlottesville. And uh, it just reminds me that the world is jacked up. And I want justice. I don't know about you, but I, I yearn for it. I want stupid people to get what's coming to them. I want evil people to be paid back for their evil. I want people who do the dark stuff to get it. Honestly, I mean, for, for being real, I want to see retribution happen to people who have perpetrated awful things. I want justice for everyone else. I just don't want it for me. I would much prefer mercy and grace. I want God to punish wicked people. I just don't want to be one of the wicked people that God punishes. But I can't sidestep that. I have to be honest. There's, there's brokenness in my heart. I've hurt people. I've said things I regret. I've done wrong. I've sinned. I have anger and a lust and pride and, and so many things that have gone on in my life and, and that I, I wrestle with. And I'm not perfect. And if God is going to be handing out justice, he's going to give it to me too. And it's not, it's not going to be pretty. So what do I do with that? Where do we go with that? Where I go with it and where many of you have gone with it and where all of us could go with it is you can go to God and ask for forgiveness for your sins. You can give your life to him. You can be baptized in water for forgiveness. You can be, your sins can be wiped away. You can commit your life to following after Christ. You can do that. People, there's someone baptized here this weekend at Area 10. People are doing it all the time. And if you want that, if you've never given your life to Christ and said, I'm in with God and I want to follow him from now through eternity, um, write it on your connection card, baptism. We will reach out to you, uh, connect with you, and, and we'll have a conversation about it. Um, but, but if I'm going to stand before God, uh, the only reason I'm going to be able to do so is because his, the blood of Jesus has covered over my sins. And this means uh, because Jesus covered over my sins, uh, that means I can, we can live with God in heaven when we die. I'm going to talk about that more in the next two weeks, what that, what that will be like and how that goes. Next week we're going to talk about, okay, you die, then what happens? So we'll get into that as, as best as I can understand it from Scripture. Number two, uh, we can live now with hope. Is this world what we want? No, not at all. It's broken. It's messy. Um, but we have hope. Jesus doesn't promise this is going to be an easy road, but he does promise us a new future. And because God covered our past on the cross because we gave our lives to him, uh, we can have a different future where God will work all things for the good. This is personal for me too, guys. I, uh, I have things that I pray for, that I've prayed for for years, 
and they're not getting better. One of my sons told me the other day that he had prayed for, or he, he had said the other day that he had been praying for two years and no change on some things. Yeah, that's the way it is. Sometimes you pray and you pray and it just doesn't get better. And so what do we do with that? Well, maybe I'm going to get to be an old man if, if God allows me to live a long time and maybe I'll die. And maybe in that, uh, in that moment I'll get an opportunity to say to God, why? Like, why did this happen? Why, why, why? Explain this to me. This made no sense. Why did this person's life end so soon? Why did this pain happen to me, to these other people, to people I know? Why so much darkness? Maybe I'll get to ask the questions, and maybe I'll get answers, or, or, or maybe, maybe I won't. But I cling to this here and now. I cling to hope. I cling to the idea that God has a plan, that history is going somewhere, and that God will make things right in the end, and that one day we'll understand. I cling to the hope of heaven, that heaven is real, and, and, and God will, will bring justice and, and, and make, uh, make things right. Let's pray. And, and, and as we pray here, I want to pray for you, uh, because as I'm talking about this, I bet there's something that you've been praying for, and praying and praying, and it's not getting better. And so I want you to think of that thing for a moment, and then we'll pray together over that. So let's bow our heads. God, we come to you as the source of power. We know that you can heal, that you can um, shine light in the darkness, that you can be a a bandage to bind up the wounds. And so I I pray that you do your work, that you um, move the needle on some of these things that we pray for. And God, if you're not going to do that, if you're you're willing to let us sit with those things, I, I pray that we will get comfortable with that. We'll either understand why or we'll, um, or we'll realize in those moments that we don't always have to know why. Um, and we won't trust in our own understanding, but we'll, we'll lean on you in, in all of this. Um, God, work in the, in the dark places um, and help us for when the times and when things come that don't get better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.